Okay, we're going to continue our sermon series entitled Cloud of Witnesses. Um, If you're new with us, let me quickly catch you up. It's very simple. There's a passage in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is one of the, the books in the New Testament. And there's a portion of Hebrews where the author, he encourages the follower of Jesus to run the race that has been set before, before us. It's a metaphor for following Jesus. This epic race, and there's a prize at the end, and Jesus is, is leading the way. And so he says, run the race that has been set for, before you. Um, consider the great cloud of witnesses that has gone before us. So there, there are others, you know, the ancients, men and women who have also trusted God in their generation, and they've run this race. And so the author says, consider, consider those, consider the great cloud of witnesses. And I imagine, you know, perhaps in the ancient world, in the first century Greco-Roman world, the, the writer is, is, is sort of in imagining something like the Olympic Games in this big amphitheater, and there's this huge crowd cheering on the runners. And it's, I imagine, like the angels in heaven and the, the saints of old cheering on those of us who are running our own race, set before us, looking to Jesus, who's begun and who will finish the race that he's called us on. So that's the idea. And we've been working through the list of, this, of these witnesses, the cloud of witnesses. They're actually named. I don't know that it's an exhaustive list, but we've been sort of like, well, let's consider each one of them. Let's look at their stories and see how they encourage us or challenge us, whatever it might be. This morning, we're going to be looking at, um, it's not just an individual, it's a whole crowd of people. The, the people of Israel, I'm talking about the ancient people, the nation of Israel that God had actually rescued out of slavery in Egypt. And he says, by faith, Israel crossed through the Red Sea. And when the Egyptians came in after them, they drowned. That's the story. Let's look at it in depth. This is actually located in Exodus chapter 13. The words will be on the screen. You're welcome to listen as I read aloud. Exodus 13, um, beginning in verse 17, and we will skip a couple of sections just to sort of consolidate our time this morning. It says, when Pharaoh let the people go, Pharaoh is the king of Egypt, God did not lead his people on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. We're told then that uh, Pharaoh actually changes his mind. Um, It's reported back to him that the people have actually fled and he realizes this is a big mistake because this is like our slave labor. This is going to destroy the economy. So he changes his mind. He assembles his army, like 600 chariots. They begin to pursue these um, former slaves through the desert. And it says in Exodus chapter 14, starting in verse 10, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up And there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there was no 
graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have, we, what have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And in Hebrews eleven twenty nine, it says, By faith the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. You guys have seen the Prince of Egypt, right? This is that story. It's one of the most epic, encouraging, profound stories in all of like the biblical narrative. The story of God showing up to deliver his people out of slavery in Egypt. Only he does it in such a peculiar way. Um, let me ask you a question. A couple questions. Have you ever been looking forward to some long, like looking forward to finally arriving at some long sought after destination, some dream that you've had, and you finally get there, and yet that thing wasn't exactly what you thought it would be? We've all been there, right? You guys tracking with me? It's that job, it's that relationship, it's that, what of that situation, and you're like, man, it would be amazing if somehow I can just make it happen, and when you finally arrive, you're like, oh, that's not quite what I had imagined. Have you ever prayed for something? I mean, really, like, poured your heart out to God. Maybe you were in a situation some, some difficult circumstances, you were in a bind, you got caught, life is falling apart, usually something to do with some kind of relationship, and you cry out to God, Lord, help me, help me, and then God finally intervenes, and, and you think, this is it, God, God's, he's working, I, I feel movement, it's like I, there, hope is on the horizon, and then at some point along the way, Everything gets weird. And you're like, this is not at all what I had envisioned as like God's solution to my problem. And it almost feels as if things are like getting worse. And you kind of wonder, your, wonder to yourself, perhaps I should think twice before I like ask God to intervene next time. Because <laughs> God has a way of intervening that can be quite overwhelming at times and seems to rarely align with like my version of his solution. Are you guys with me? Have you ever, perhaps not everyone has experienced that. The former for sure, but have you ever experienced that? That is what I call a Red Sea moment. They were being delivered out of Egypt. Um, God had been working, doing all these miraculous things. Things were shifting. It, it, it seemed as if deliverance was on the horizon. And just as they're leaving, equipped for battle, 
says elsewhere that they left defiantly. You almost get the sense that they thought, man, this is, this is it. We're finally going to stick it to them and, and we're going to win the day. And then as they're leaving, God says, oh, no, don't go that way. Don't go that way. Let me lead you around this other direction. In fact, let me lead you to where you end up getting, like, stuck between Pharaoh and his insanely massive army and this giant sea. Let's, that, let's do that. And next thing you know, deliverance has turned into what apparently must have felt like, oh, goodness, everything has now gone terribly wrong. That is a Red Sea moment. A Red Sea moment. God showing up to rescue, heal, intervene in a way that leads one to the end of their own might or strength or know-how or ability to the end of themselves and in a moment usually feels more like the brink of imminent failure than divine help or deliverance. This is a Red Sea moment. And this is actually a principal moment in the life of God's people. Now, you probably noticed our sophisticated diagram. Here's where our story is taking place. Here's Egypt, of course. I don't know if the pyramids existed way back then. How old are the pyramids? Okay, I'm getting nods. Thank you, thank you. Yep, they're super old. So there's Egypt. They had been in slavery. Um, By the way, I didn't include this part, but I think it's worth mentioning that 400 years prior to this moment, God's people were actually thriving in Egypt. They were living in the region of Egypt called Goshen. And God led them there, and they flourished. They did really, really well. It was the good life. So they actually started out in a very good place, like this um, some kind of serene garden, if you will. And then something went wrong. Something. And they ended up in slavery 400 years later. So they cry out. And God remembers the promises that he had made to their fathers. And because God is really faithful, he said, right, I'm not going to just leave you to rot away in Egypt. I'm going to save you. So he interjects and he begins to deliver his people out of slavery. And they could have gone this way. They were equipped for battle. They thought they were ready for a fight. God knew better. So instead he led them around this little mini wilderness. And of course, as I just mentioned, as we just read, when Pharaoh realized what was going on, they chased them and they got hemmed in. And they freak out. They're having their Red Sea moment. God intervenes once again, and they cross through the Red Sea. God tells Moses, the prophet, lift up your staff, raise your hand. And he does, and God ends up dividing the waters. Now, if you struggle with um, supernatural moments, you're going to struggle with this one. This, this is unreal. This is unreal. But this is, this is God. God moves. Um, They cross through the Red Sea. They end up in another little mini wilderness. Eventually make their way to um, this mountain called Mount Sinai. There God um, gives his people the commandments, the ten words. Uh, He makes a covenant with them. 
the way the way it's described in scripture the, the it sounds a lot like a wedding ceremony there's like exchanging of vows it's like a a husband declaring his vows to his bride and the bride says i do and it's it's like god entering into this love relationship with his people and of course the law these are the stipulations of the covenant. They describe what this love relationship is meant to look like. And so they receive um, the love covenant called the law on Mount Sinai. And then God leads them from Mount Sinai uh, into another larger wilderness. Now they're meant to cross the wilderness and then get to this land called the promised land that God had actually prepared for them. Many, many, many years ago, he led them across this um, out of slavery through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai through the wilderness. And they were meant to get to the Jordan River and then cross over into this promised land where the good king was to reign. Um, now, if you're familiar with the story at all, you'll know that uh, it wasn't quite as simple as that. They ended up actually wandering around this desert for 40 years. The desert, or this wilderness, is where God's people were meant to have their trust in him refined. They were meant to be tested. But not in like this uh, petty, sort of like, oh, I'm going to test you because I'm insecure and I need you to prove your affection. Not, not like that. God doesn't play games like we do. Um, it was God's way of leading his people through a process that would allow them to grow in their trust in him. It was a refining process. Only God's people really struggled to trust God. So they ended up wandering around in the desert. An entire generation passed before they finally crossed over the Jordan in to the promised land where the good king reigns. And there, the walls came down and giants were slain. And they enjoyed the goodness of God reigning over their people. And eventually there were other kings and other prophets. And the story would go on and on. And this forms the archetypal narrative of God's story. And our story, the story that we're invited into. Later... Jesus, who was like the, the new, the true Moses, he uh, hears the cries of God's people who are in slavery once again in the promised land, uh, this time to a different empire, Rome. They cry out to God, and once again God hears his people's cry because God is super faithful he comes down only this time. He doesn't send just another prophet. What we end up discovering is that all the prophets were actually pointing to Jesus. God himself who would come down and lead his people. And Jesus ends up sort of recapitulating this grand narrative, the story of God. We're actually told that Jesus begins in Egypt. Like literally as an infant. Kind of weird. And then he comes on the scene and we're told that Jesus is baptized. In the New Testament, um, 
the Red Sea, we're told, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Red Sea is like this picture, this metaphor that's uh, pointing to what we now refer to as baptism, this idea of, being, of passing through the water. Jesus gets baptized. You know what happens as soon as Jesus comes up out of the water in his own baptism? We're told that the Holy Spirit descends upon and remains on Jesus as he comes up out of the water. That's Mount Sinai. I know that. You know, when we saw uh, the church celebrates Pentecost, it's 50 days after the, uh, it's, it commemorates the time when God's people received the law in its original context. Now, as Christians, we celebrate it as the time when the Holy Spirit descended upon God's people and the church was born. We're told that once upon a time, God inscribed his law on stone tablets. In Jesus Christ, God has now inscribed his law of love on human hearts. So Jesus leaves Egypt, passes through the waters. The spirit descends on him. And then what happens next? If you've read the Gospels, you, you know the story. The Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. And not for 40 years, but for 40 days, Jesus is tested. He's tested. And he passes the test. He doesn't, he doesn't waver. He doesn't fail. He doesn't end up dying like the generation before him. He actually passes with flying colors. And then he comes out of the wilderness and begins to proclaim the kingdom of God is at hand. The good shepherd king is here. Rejoice. Repent. Turn away from your old idols. Those things that want to actually enslave you. And trust the true good king. I've come here to set you free. So Jesus retells the whole story. And then he invites us to enter into the story. Let me ask you this question. When you think about sort of this... Um, this archetypal narrative. Now, it was real for God's people. Jesus sort of made it his own, where we discover, oh, this, this was all pointing to a, a, an eternal story, a reality fulfilled in Jesus. Where are you in this story? Everywhere, all at once? What's that? Okay. Jordan's in the Jordan. That's right. Where are you in the story? Um, you might say, for sure I'm here. That's, I, I, I sort of live in slavery. Hate to admit it, but yeah, that's my life. Or maybe, maybe the wilderness kind of resonates with you. You're like, yeah, I spend most of my life just wandering around. I'm trying, I'm trying to, to get it right. But man, I feel like every time there's like a hurdle in front of me, I'm just like, I'm just face planning over and over again. And, and I'm trying to trust, but I'm struggling because it's hard. I have trust issues. So you're, you're here someplace. Or maybe you say like, no, no, no. I'm born again, brother. 
Like, I'm living in the promised land. <laughs> Hallelujah. And to which I would say, okay, awesome, awesome. So, like, have you slain any giants lately? Have all the walls of Jericho come down? Like, because the kingdom of heaven hasn't actually arrived yet. This is, um, I'll teach you a fancy word, maybe you already know it. This is what theologians called an inaugurated eschatology. If you want to impress your friends at Bible school, an inaugurated eschatology. So you know what like inaugurated means, right? Something's like um, it's it's begun. It's begun. Eschatology is just the word for like the study of of end things. So the end has begun. The the destination, the final destination, the kingdom of heaven on earth has begun but it's not done yet so it's come and is coming if you are born again you have been saved and you are being saved that's an inaugurated eschatology so surely actually had it right in the first place we're everywhere it depends on the season of life to be sure if you've surrendered your life to Jesus then you are seated with him in heaven that's, that's where your identity resides. That's who you are at the core. But until Jesus comes back and the kingdom of heaven has finally come, we're still, we're still living out the story. And along the way, we might find ourselves in the wilderness. God is trying to lead us in such a way that our trust in him, our faith is being refined which is why in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, we're told, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that, that happens because your faith is being tested. It's God's way of using the circumstances of life to help us learn to trust him more. And sometimes we get it right, and sometimes we fail, and God is so faithful, so patient, He's like, a, he's like a really good parent. He's like the parent I try to be. So that's the wilderness. Um, Mount Sinai. You, you got you to revisit Sinai as much as possible. One of the prayers that I pray every day is, Heavenly Father, would you fill me again today? That I might be filled with all the fullness of who you are. Holy Spirit, would you fill me again? Father, would you pour your love into my heart again today? Because I need more of you. I need, I need daily bread. I need to be filled as much as I think to ask. And so Mount Sinai is, is some place where we can return. It's ironic later on in the story of God when we read of one of the other prophets, the prophet Elijah. We're told that Elijah had just conquered one of um, God's enemies, Jezebel. Not Jezebel, her husband. Um, it's a long story. It's a long story. But after this big victory, we're told that he basically slips into this state of what reads like suicidal depression. Sounds demonic. Sounds like he's struggling with some like mental health things. And um, God says, go back to the mountain. 
Go back to the mountain. I want to meet you there. That's a whole series in itself. Maybe we'll do that one next. God calls us back to the mountain to fill us again and again. And then, and then after we've been filled, then he's like, all right, let's go, let's, go back to the, let's go back to the wilderness. I want to teach you how to not just begin by grace, but to actually now live out your life in reliance upon me. I don't want to just fill you so that you can hold on until you get to heaven. I want to teach you how to walk this stuff out. I want to teach you how to work out your salvation. And so I'm going to keep bringing you back and fill. I'm going to set you free a little bit more. Then I'm going to fill you a little bit more. Then we're going to test you a little bit more. And you're going to come back and experience more of my kingdom breaking out in your life because I want to tear down more walls. And I want to slay more giants. And I want to do more things, not just in your life, but in the world and in generations to come. And so this is our story. This is our story. This is our story. Occasionally, we find ourselves back right here. We're having a Red Sea moment. Have you had a Red Sea moment lately? Let's see, where am I? Let me ask you this. How can you recognize a Red Sea moment? Because sometimes um, we like God's people, the ancients, we can fail to recognize that actually this is part of God's deliverance. And, and while God is doing something amazing, I'm panicking. <laughs> I'm like, get the swords out. Or better, better yet, this is, this is more, this coheres more with my reality. Who's the leader? Let's get that guy. What's wrong with you, Moses? We told you, you idiot. You screwed everything up. We knew he couldn't trust you. Come on, guys, let's go. This, and we panic, we panic, we panic. And God's like, no, look, hang on a second. What I'm doing now is delivering you from Egypt. You know what I've learned over time? God doesn't need any help getting Egypt out of the way. But I need a lot of help getting Egypt out of my ways. Sounds a bit cliche. What's the old saying? You can... You can, you can <laughs> I don't, I'm going to screw it up. You can, you can move out of the hood, but has the hood moved out of you? It goes something like that. I know that sounds really lame. <laughs> Sorry. You guys get it, right? You can change all the circumstances of your life. Sorry, if I, if I, was that offensive? I, I'm like so paranoid that I'm going like to say something offensive. Okay, okay. You, you feel me? Okay. I get, the, I get the okay from Dave. We're good. Okay. You can think, what I really need God to do is just to, to rearrange the circumstances in my life. Just deal with this enemy. Only I realize over time, man, I get through the Red Sea and I get filled. And I'm out in the wilderness and I'm like, oh, dang, I still got quite a bit of Egypt left in me. And so God says, I know that. I've always known that. 
tell you what, let's do another lap. Let's get some more of the Egypt out. And I'm, I'm back at the Red Sea, have my Red Sea moment, and God's being so good and so faithful, wanting to deliver me, wanting to just peel back another layer, set me free a little bit more, that I might be filled a little bit more, that some more walls come down. And I'm like, man, let's get the leader. Like, let's, let's go to battle. And so what you see happening is the people, they're like, what do we do? Where do we go? Who do we fight? Where do we got to run to? And they're like, they're doing, I mean, it's, it's the classic, like, fight or flight, right? That's what we do. Failing to recognize that God is saying, look, just be still. I'm going to fight for you. Don't lynch your leader. It was maybe partially Moses' fault because he's human. Okay? So you want to be really gracious with your leaders. Be still. Put the swords down. Don't run. Reminds me of when Jesus took his uh, disciples on a boat ride across a sea. Not this sea, a different sea. We're told that Jesus was asleep in the boat and the waves started to kick up. Full-blown storm breaks out and the disciples, they are panicking. It must have have been quite a scene. I don't know. I'm convinced, this is my personal theory, that Jesus wasn't actually sleeping. He was like chilling, very, very much at rest with like one eye open like, what are you guys going to do? What are you, you going to do? <laughs> Just waiting from like, you guys, I'm right here. right? You can, you, can, you can ask me for help anytime. Which they, of course, finally do. You know what Jesus says to the storm? Be still. And the storm obeys. This is a Red Sea moment. Be still. What we usually do is just like, jump out of the boat. I'm going to (laughs) die. Egypt was way better. I hate you, dad. I hate you, pastor. (laughs) And we panic. We must recognize our father in heaven, he's good. He's faithful. He's not playing games with us. Especially If you have been crying out to God, Lord, help. God knows it it could be my fault that I'm here in the first place. My goodness, I look back at all like the bad decisions that I've made. And there I am again, freaking out. And I cry out to God halfway thinking he's not going to help me. He's probably so done. So done with me and my nonsense. Here I am asking God to forgive me again for the same thing. He's he's probably so sick of hearing my prayers. He's not. He's not. He's a good and faithful father. Of course, he wants to teach me how to grow up. Thus, the wilderness He doesn't want to just leave me to like live my life in this perpetual cycle of pain and 
stupidity and he, he wants me to grow up. He wants me to sin less. Someone asked me, one of our church elders asked me a really good question recently. He said, Simon, are you more healed than you are broken today? It's a good question, right? And as soon as he asked me, I, I felt very defensive. I'm like, well, that, that sounds like a trick question. What do you mean? Like, you mean like, am I like over 50%? Am I like, like I, don't, I don't know. So I thought about it for a second. I took a deep breath. I tried to still myself because anxiety causes you to get defensive. And I said, you know, if Jesus is the standard, I think I have a whole lifetime to go. That's my answer. I'd like to think that I'm way more healed than broken. Maybe that's just not the question I should be asking myself. It's a fair question. It's a very thought-provoking question. But maybe there's a better question to ask. Maybe instead of panicking and asking, where do I go? What do I do? Maybe I should be asking, maybe we should all be asking ourselves, to whom shall I go? Who is God to you? Can I suggest that that is the most important question you'll ever have to answer in life? Who is God? Who's your God? If your God is an impatient, petty God who's just looking for an excuse to punish his kids, oh yes, by all means, panic. By all means, do that. Run, hide, cover up, lie to yourself, do whatever you have to do. But if your God is an unfathomably merciful God who has grace that abounds. Whenever I sin and I cry out to my father, it's like he just keeps one-upping me with his grace. And when I think he's going to demand that I pay back every penny that I've ever wasted, Every moment, every breath that I've breathed in rebellion, I think surely God's going to demand that I pay off my debt. And I begin to think, well, I've got to somehow prove to him that, I'm, that I'm, I'm, I'm worth him answering my prayers. I've got to somehow convince him that I will do better. I will, I will get it right next time. And I discover that my father is not that kind of God. He doesn't just take my debt and transfer it over to a higher interest rate only to perpetuate the cycle of shame. He says, give me your debt. I will pay it in full. But how much do I owe you, Dad? I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't know. Debt? What debt? Oh, you mean the debt that my son already suffered for to pay in full? Yeah, that's done. You want to add to that? 
hmm, we have a problem. You can't, you can't, you can't add to the completed work on the cross because of who Jesus is, his faithfulness and his sacrifice because this is his story first and foremost. Anytime I cry out to God, there's just grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And even if I should fall a thousand times in Christ, I am righteous. And he lifts me back up. He cleanses me. Yes, amen. Your situation may feel dire. The enemy may be drawing near. You may be tempted to believe that Egypt was way better than this in Christ. None of those things are true. God is good. God is faithful. Be still and watch our Father fight for you. Be still. Take deep breaths. Can we stand together, please? I want to offer us a, um, a practical next step. Some of these things, because you're going to have to go find this sermon and listen to it like six months from now, a year from now. Um, because life's not always just Red Sea moments. It's not always just like fight or flight, panic. It's sometimes, man, just enjoy like the sweet season of life. Just, just enjoy it. Play. Eat. Just be one of God's kids. But when the time does come, and you're like, man, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed that God would finally bless me with a spouse, only to realize that God, that's like God's master plan for me to become the man I've always wanted to become. And all I want to do is freak out, like all the time. <laughs> Because marriage is a gift um, and really hard, really hard, just like all of life. And so every time I'm about to panic and how to blame someone or just run and hide, God reminds me, like, I'm here, I'm with you. This is part of what I'm doing. Be still. Be still. You don't need to go do something. You don't need to go go someplace, what you need to do is remember who I am. Remember who I am. When I cry out, when you cry out to me, I do answer. Now be still. As a church, this is, this is the practical thing that I've been thinking about. God's really put this on my heart, I think. Um, I want us to grow in this as a church family. So that the next time, um, you know, there's a, there's a big world event, uh, probably in 2024, um, and the media is kicking off, and everyone's freaking out, and everything's on fire, and like, and the church is just freaking out. What if we had been working on becoming the kind of people that are learning how to be still in the storm? 
trusting that, like, oh, our, our Father's faithful. Being still is not a call to inaction. It's not passivity. It's not just letting evil run rampant in the streets. It takes a lot of courage. It takes discipline to be like, no, I'm not going to jump out of the boat. I'm going to go to Jesus. Emotionally, oh, yeah, I'm a wreck. Lord Jesus, help. And we practice being still. So here's what we're going to do starting this week. We've been praying Tuesday mornings for uh, 6 a.m. for about six years now. And I feel like God is calling us into a season of practicing stillness. So if you're able to make it to Tuesday morning, 6 a.m. prayer, even if it's just for a little bit of time, here's what we're going to be doing. We're going to practice simply praying in silence, which is really, really hard because I like to talk and I've got a lot of things that God needs to hear. I got to catch him up on all the drama. I got to remind him of how like hard it is down here. I'm joking. And so we're going to practice being still together. For some of you, you're like, yes, awesome. I love that. Others of you, you're going to, it'll be so hard for you. It'll be so hard for us. But I'm inviting you. And I know 6 a.m. on a a Tuesday is like so impractical. Maybe, Maybe that's part of it. Maybe it's supposed to be that way. Cost something. Requires some discipline. Anyway, if you come here on a Tuesday at 6 a.m., even if it's like once a month, we do it every week, we're going to be sitting in our boiler room, which we call our prayer room, which is literally directly below me, just simply being still. That's how we're going to pray. Maybe we'll do that for the summer, and we'll see. We'll see what happens. Now, we got this thing. We have two people here this morning who are going to receive baptism. And I don't know if there's really much I need to say because there it is. There it is. God calls us to the waters. And as we look to Jesus, he leads us in. Only he doesn't leave us in the water. He washes us. And the enemy of our soul is drowned in the sea while we're raised up to new life. That's baptism. That's what Jesus does. So this morning, Sue and Gio, where Gio? Where you are? Where, where you at, Gio? Oh, there you are. Okay, cool, cool, cool. I thought you made a run for it. They're going to get baptized. If you guys need to go downstairs and change or anything like that, that's fine. We have some towels here. We're going to begin to worship in song. And then we're going to take a moment and uh, baptize our brother and our sister. Uh, Let's worship Jesus together now.